0: you would have thought that Alexander Fleming, the discovery of penicillin, would have uh, easily got his fellowship of the Royal Society. However, it took 20-odd years from him first being proposed, partly because of jealousies and professional rivalries. He was first elected, he was first proposed in 1922, he was, elect, he was uh, proposed again in 1923, 1924, then there was a compulsory gap, then he was proposed again. It wasn't until March 1943, by now, it was impossible to ignore his claims that Fleming was actually elected a Fellow of the Royal Society, question is, why did it take so long? Well, this series of lectures is uh, linked by the theme of microscopy. And Fleming probably owed a lot of his career to the microscope and the possibility of investigating microbes. Bacteriology, when he started out, was an exciting new science. Now, I should say, in these august settings, that Fleming's original ambition had been to be a surgeon. He actually uh, worked and got his fellowship of the Royal College of Surgeons. However, he always claimed he was the only surgeon who'd never operated. Because when he qualified as a medical student and as a doctor at St Mary's Hospital Paddington back in 1906, there were no suitable house jobs for him as a surgeon. Now, he was offered a temporary job in bacteriology. This was partly because he was one of the most brilliant medical students of his day, it was also because he was a very good shot. The hospital had a rifle team and didn't want to lose him to another hospital. So he was offered a post in bacteriology, and if you'll pardon the pun, he got the bug. Now, bacteriology was an exciting new profession. It seemed to offer the way forward in medicine at the turn of the 20th century. And Fleming was really there at the beginning. Now he was later to say that for Pasteur, 1881 had been a memorable year. It was the year of his work with anthrax that seemed to vindicate Pasteur's views on immunology It was also the year in which Alexander Ogston uh, classified staphylococci, a bacterium that was to play a part in Fleming's own career. It was also the year he was born. As you can see, he had a sense of humour. And let's face it, the man needed it. As discoverer of penicillin, the knives were out for him, certainly amongst the medical profession. And it's really some of those rivalries that I want to discuss today. So here you can see various surgeons using a variety of implements that I don't think will find a place in the Hunterian Museum. And one surgeon, Arthur Dixon Wright, actually accused Fleming of having put more people out of work than anyone else in history. By that, he meant people like himself, surgeons, venereologists, and so on. In actual fact, you could argue that by making more invasive work possible, Penicillin actually gave more work to the surgeon. But Fleming, in a way, was, do, was uh, dogged by professional jealousies and a tint of controversy. And that was inevitable when you consider who his head of department and mentor was. Sir Alnroth Wright... Godfather of British Microbiology. To his uh, fellow doctors, he was known also as Sir Almost Right and Sir Always Wrong. In In turn, he told them, if they didn't soon learn to do something, they'd all be out of a job and should be. Not a man to mince his words. Unfortunately, that brought him into argument with just about everyone. The medical profession, the politicians. And the media loved him because he was larger than life. But I think that even they got sick of the constant letters On just about everything, George Bernard Shaw was his great friend. And they debated the subject of women's suffrage. Wright, as you can probably guess, was an opponent. According to him, women were medically unfit to have the vote. Shaw countered that argument by saying, yes, he agreed that women were the intellectual inferiors of Wright and himself. But then, so were most men. And if they could have the vote, why not women? Well, topical arguments uh, this week, perhaps. However, Wright did attract enemies. He was made for argument. He was made for enmity. And... Fleming very much was in his shadow for many years. Fleming entered the inoculation department at St. Mary's in 1909, sorry, in 1906. He was still there when he died in 1955. And there he came under the influence, not only of Wright but of um, modern trends in microbiology, on the wall of this photograph, you see a small portrait photograph of Eli Metchnikoff. That picture always hung in Fleming's lab. So you can see those chains of connection with the great scientists of the 19th century, the founders of modern microbiology, and Fleming very much saw himself, if you like, want to quote Newton, standing on the shoulders of giants. He was a member of the inoculation department of St Mary's Hospital and this was a fairly remarkable group of young men who came under the influence of the old man as they called Almroth Wright. Now Leonard Colebrook was one of them who then went on to become an FRS himself and also did a lot of work on the use of sulfonamides on purple sepsis and then in the second world war on burns. And John Freeman and Leonard Noon laid the foundations of modern allergy with their study in 1909 of hay fever they put hay fever on the map so Fleming was working in an environment that would have equipped him to become a competent a good scientist but was he anything more well he first came to fame or infamy if you like as a pox doctor in 1909 Paul Ehrlich developed Salvasan and he gave one of the earliest samples of it to Alnroth Wright, a man with no sympathy for chemotherapy. He passed it on to one of his juniors, Alexander Fleming, who, in the years up to the First World War, built up a reputation as someone who was able to give the new technique of intravenous injections fairly comfortably. And I imagine it still hurt. Now, in his spare time, Fleming was a member of the London Scottish Regiment. And he was depicted by one of his friends, a cartoonist, as Private 606. 606, because Salvasan was also known as compound 606. And instead of a bayonet and a dagger in his stocking, Fleming has a syringe full of salvarsan. Fellow members of the London Scottish were some of his patients. So by 1914, he was building up a reputation. By 1919... He uh, had a reputation as one of the foremost experts in this country on wound infection. Almroth Wright, in 1914, simply packed up his entire department at St Mary's and transported it en masse to a military hospital set up at the casino in Boulogne. And Fleming joined them. And there they began a study of the whole subject of wound infection. They actually showed that the use of antiseptics on wounds was actually doing more harm than good. Fleming used all of his ingenuity in order to produce an artificial wound. He was well known for his skill with glass and modern wounds because of the ballistics used in the first world war had jagged edges so using a simple test tube he reproduced a glass wound and showed that what was happening was that a the uh, antiseptics being used could not penetrate the jagged edges of those wounds. He showed that uh, also that the bacteria were given a rapid inroad into the wound because what was happening was the antiseptics were killing the blood cells off much more quickly than they could kill the bacteria. Results gas gangrene, in many cases loss of limb. Fleming's answer was simple keep the wound clean, wash it out with a mild saline solution. Sensible advice. It wasn't widely adopted by the British Army until nineteen forty. What scuppered it back in 1917, 1918? Well, a combination of medical and military politics. All centred on Sir almroth Almroth-Wright. Doctors and generals have one thing in common. Neither of them likes to be told what to do. So... By the time Fleming returned home after the war, he had built up a solid reputation as the expert on wound infections and in fact gave a Hunterian lecture on the subject. Then, not only would that have given him a claim perhaps to fellowship of the Royal Society, but in 1921, He made the first of his big discoveries, lysozyme, a natural antiseptic, an enzyme found in many body fluids. Fleming discovered it in November 1921. He had a cold. A drop of mucus fell from his nose onto a plate of bacteria, and he decided to mix it in. And see just what would happen. Now that was one of the wonderful things about this man. He always said he liked to play with bacteria. He liked to see what might happen. And after a couple of weeks he found signs of the bacteria being lysed or dissolved. By something in that nasal mucus. He then established this was an enzyme, lysozyme, which simply means an enzyme which dissolves. Well, Fleming always said his best work as a scientist had been done on lysozyme. That, I would say, was an honest estimation. After all, he took its study onto a much higher level Than he ever did with penicillin. Now, he was so proud of it that he would uh, do a lot of experiments, and he found that human tears were a good source. So, had you visited Fleming's lab back in 1921 or 1922, you'd have been pounced upon and had lemon juice squeezed into your eyes to make you cry. People soon got wise to that. So Fleming would pay the lab technicians so much a month to have unlimited lemon juice squeezed into their eyes. Told one of them he'd soon be able to retire on what he earned. Well, he might have had other problems. Well, anyway, Fleming's uh, work and his use of lemon juice got to the ears of a cartoonist on punch. In those days, the lab technicians were known as lab boys. It didn't matter if they were 15 or 75, they were still boys. So, the cartoonist assumed that the lab boys must be school boys and produced this cartoon showing school kids queuing up to be thrashed to produce tear antiseptic didn't quite happen like that it's a marvellous image well Fleming was very excited about lysozyme and he first presented his findings to uh, a meeting of the medical research club he had 10 minutes to do it in at the end of it there was silence Now, Fleming always took an absence of questions to mean that he'd explained everything marvellously. In fact, people either hadn't heard him or they hadn't fully understood. Sir Henry Dale, future president of the Royal Society, later on commented that the reaction was simply, ''Oh, isn't that charming?'' It's just the sort of naturalist's observation which Fleming makes. Rather dismissive, I think, and a bit patronising. However, as a result of that work on lysozyme, Sir Almroth Wright proposed Fleming for his fellowship of the Royal Society. As I said earlier, it wasn't until the 18th of March 1943 that Fleming was elected. Now, I think a lot of the reasons for that was, first of all, if Wright proposed something, people automatically reacted against it. The other was possibly people hadn't really understood really what Fleming had done with lysozyme. In his published papers, he explained everything very clearly. In person, he muttered and was a very unexciting speaker. He also, perhaps, had a reputation for not taking things entirely seriously One of his hobbies was painting. He didn't use oils or watercolours. He used different pigmented bacteria. Germ paintings. Well, very ingenious. A bit of fun. But they also take a lot of ability and knowledge to do it all, let alone well. However, it did give Fleming a reputation as a bit of a dilettante. And the thing is, everything seemed to come easy to him. Also, perhaps as a scientist, it gives you some idea of the imaginative approach he had to science. Now, that imaginative approach, I think, does have a serious side. After all, if you can look at things differently, doesn't that make you a good scientist? And certainly the germ paintings were something different. So, in a way, all of that prepared Fleming to be observant when, here at St. Mary's Hospital in 1928, Fleming discovered penicillin. Somehow, he could have only discovered it in his musty, dusty, old-fashioned laboratory. If there was no possibility of contamination of a Petri dish by a fungus, then there would have been no penicillin. I'm not sure this cartoon would quite meet with the approval of the authorities at St Mary's. However, it does show the need for rebuilding Anyway, I hope some of you will uh, be able to come along and see Fleming's lab as it was back in 1928 on one of the tours in connection with these events. And then you can see for yourself just where the antibiotic age all had its beginnings. And all as a result of the work of this man, Alexander Fleming. He'd been asked in the summer of 1928 to write a chapter for Medical Research Council publication, a systematic study of bacteriology. His subject was Staphylococcus aureus. He finished the work, had no further use for his culture plates, and he went off on holiday. What does he do with the plates? He leaves them on the lab bench. Now, that was actually by design. It's how he usually worked. He liked to leave things for a couple of weeks after he'd finished with them, just in case anything interesting or unusual might happen. Very much, Fleming was in that tradition of the 19th century naturalist, someone interested in the unusual. And that approach was about to pay off. So he came back from holiday on Monday, the 3rd of September. There were the culture plates where he'd left them. He checked them for one last time. (coughs) Something caught his attention on one of them. He turned to a colleague. Hmm, that's funny, he said. That's funny. He was a master of understatement. Now what he saw was that the culture plate had become come contaminated by a fungus. That didn't interest him. It must have happened many times before. What interested Fleming was that close to the mold, that big white blob at the top of the plate, there were no bacteria growing. He concluded that the fungus had produced something that stopped the growth of the bacteria. That substance was penicillin. Which Fleming named after the fungus Penicillium notatum, which produces it. Now, Fleming, unfortunately, was unable to purify or stabilise penicillin. His importance was that he was the lone researcher, someone with the eye for the quirky, for the unusual who had the freedom to pursue something just because it happened to interest him. If you wanted to develop penicillin, clinically, you needed more skills, more expertise, more knowledge than one person could possibly have. What you needed was a multidisciplinary team. Fleming didn't have that. And he found it was impossible to stabilise the penicillin it was also impossible to purify it. Even when it was first used systemically, first injected into a patient, some 13 years later, it's estimated that what was being injected was 97% impure. So imagine how harmful it could have been in its uh, simple filtrate form when Fleming worked on it. However, he did point out there was a clinical potential. Now, he was thinking mainly in terms of topical use, almost as a local antiseptic on the surface of a wound. But he does also mention the possibility of systemic use, of application by injection. So, Fleming, in 1929 when he published this paper, now a classic of medicine, actually saw ahead that there might be a clinical potential for penicillin. Now, all of this suggests definitely there was a case for him to be elected to fellowship. This was a man... He was looking at things as a true scientist. However, the 1929 paper was ignored for a long time. And it wasn't until 1939 that it was taken up by a team of scientists at the University of Oxford, led by this gentleman, Howard Florey, professor of pathology. And he and his team had just finished work on a study of lysozyme, Fleming's first great discovery. Ernst Chain, the biochemist on that team, was an expert on enzymes. And that's what attracted him to penicillin. Now, as it happened... It was the similarities between lysozyme and penicillin that had got Fleming interested some uh, 11 years earlier. Because the trouble was, lysozyme doesn't act against the most pathogenic of bacteria. So when Fleming had seen what lysozyme did, then Fleming uh, was interested in it, just in case... It might be another enzyme. In fact, he soon established it wasn't an enzyme at all. Actually, it would have saved Chain a lot of work if he'd believed Fleming that it wasn't an enzyme. Now, the Oxford team started out on penicillin as a pure academic research project. They weren't looking at the clinical potential. What interested them was penicillin as an antibacterial as they progressed with their work they became alive to the clinical potential and that was actually quite important in the early days of the second world war there was now a feeling that research ought to be more applied now they published their initial findings on penicillin in 1940, just as the London Blitz began. And Fleming went along to see what they'd done. Later on, Chain claimed that he thought Fleming was dead. Well, I think that's doubtful. After all, if he was doing a literature search on he'd have known that Fleming was still publishing. So, Chain as a good scientist should have known. Flory though should have known even better because Fleming was still being proposed for membership of the Royal Society. Flory had been elected and indeed was on the election committee. Now Fleming was always to give due credit to the work of Florey and Chain. A modest man, he never tried to claim credit for what he hadn't done. Sometimes he didn't claim it for what he had. But increasingly, Florey became neurotic about what was actually happening. Now, one of the problems was Flory would not speak to the media. When penicillin was published, the press became interested in something that could be of value to the war effort. And they flocked, first of all, to the steps of St Mary's and then to the door of the William Dunn School of Pathology at Oxford. Florey would not speak to them. He considered it unethical for a doctor to get involved with publicity. Also, as an Australian, he felt something of an outsider. He shouldn't have done. He was Professor of Pathology at Oxford. He was an FRS. And very much he fitted into the medical establishment but he was very conscious of his own reputation so he didn't talk to the media Fleming happily did and also when you, co- when you compare the two sides of penicillin on the one side you have Flory and Chain hard slog in the laboratory ...that it is difficult for the media to make a good story out of. On the other side, you have the romance of a chance observation... a ...contamination by a spore of mould that comes from who knows where. And so, of course, the popular press built up Fleming's side of the story. And also, Fleming went along with it... Because working at a voluntary hospital, he was well aware of the importance for fundraising in the days before the NHS of good publicity. And indeed, St Mary's touted itself as the birthplace of penicillin. Sadly, in the economic situation at the end of the Second World War, the hospital didn't really benefit the idea was to build a new hospital on the back of Penicillin. One of the wings, the Queen, Elizabeth, the Queen Elizabeth wing, when it was actually built, was the Queen Elizabeth, the Queen Mother wing. And that wasn't until 1988. So, chain, however, very much the image of the uh, mad scientist, with something of the Einstein about him, as you'll see from this photograph, he was very aware of the importance of publicity. And there was a massive argument between Flory and him over Flory's failure to capitalise on the publicity value. And In fact, when you think of some of the work being done at Oxford, they were working in very poor conditions. For example, there were six penicillin girls who were employed to tend the mould. They could have earned more working in a canteen in nearby Cowley. But by this time, penicillin was seen as of importance to the war effort. Well, the whole controversy over credit for penicillin kicked off as a result of the intervention of Sir Almroth Wright. It was almost inevitable. Now, a man who had no sympathy for chemotherapy, still less for antibiotics, couldn't resist writing to the Times, and in a letter that was published on the 27th of August 1942, suggested that the laurel wreath for the discovery be placed on the brow of Professor Alexander Fleming. Professor Fleming of Almroth Wright's own laboratory. And Wright pointed out quite truthfully that Fleming had discovered penicillin and had also made the initial suggestion that uh, penicillin might be important medically all true well as you can imagine this got the backs of the oxford team up and almost immediately professor robert robinson wrote on behalf of flory and his team that he thought a laurel wreath or at least a bouquet should be presented to flory so already the battle lines are drawn Now, as publicity for penicillin built up, and it was important for Britain to publicise this new development, this was perhaps a low point in the Second World War. It was the year of Alamein, but that wasn't the beginning of the end, as Churchill put it, it was only the end of the beginning. War news up to this point had been unmitigated disaster. In the previous 12 months, had been the fall of Singapore, the empire in the east, and people needed good news. Penicillin offered that, the hope of life in the midst of death. And so there was a lot of press coverage of Alexander Fleming. And Flory, if you read his correspondence at the Royal Society, he's almost uh, neurotic on the subject. There's a paranoia there. And he uh, points out that he's got good evidence that Fleming is doing his best... To put himself forward for the glory. Now that doesn't fit in with Fleming's character. A modest, unassuming man. And he wrote to Sir Henry Dale, President of the Royal Society. To point out that Fleming's election to the Fellowship should perhaps be reconsidered. Dale did not want controversy to harm the reputation of the Royal Society. And he told Flory to wear calm down. He pointed out there was no evidence for any of this. And also that he didn't want to jeopardise things when Fleming was up for re-election... And imagine the public outcry if the discovery of penicillin was not elected this time. So Fleming was duly elected on the 18th of March 1943. His colleagues at St Mary's held a party for him. He went along and he was a bit bemused by all the nice things that were being said about him. And so he modestly wanted to disclaim them. He wanted to point out that it would be nice if we could see ourselves as others see us. Because really he didn't recognise the picture they painted. So he used a quotation from Burns. Would to God the gifty gives us to see ourselves as others see us. Unfortunately he got a bit uh, flummoxed. And used the quotation in the wrong place. So it actually sounded as if he was being a bit peevish and that people should have recognised his genius earlier. Sometimes the taciturn and awkward can give the wrong impression simply because they are not used to putting their good qualities forward. Meanwhile, the press interest went on. And Howard Flory's letters become even more paranoid. And now he doesn't think it's Fleming who's behind it. At one point, he's blaming uh, St Mary's Hospital for its unscrupulousness in trying to credit Fleming with all the work done at Oxford. A deliberate and clever campaign. No evidence for that. And then he blames Lord Moran, the Dean of the Medical School at St Mary's, and Winston Churchill's personal physician. Well, Lord Moran was President of the uh, Royal College of Physicians. He had a reputation for deviousness. His nickname corkscrew Charlie and it was deserved however Lord Moran wasn't a fan of Fleming's and also probably uh, one of the most common myths about penicillin is that Lord Moran used it to treat Churchill when Churchill had pneumonia in Casablanca And the legend goes that this was the second time Fleming had saved Churchill's life. The first time as boys when they were out swimming. Well, difficult that one. Fleming's about 20 years younger. Sorry, about 10 years younger. The other... And uh, the Churchill family in gratitude, fund Fleming's medical studies and then penicillin saves Churchill's life. Well, no truth to any of it. And indeed, Lord Moylan refused to use penicillin on Churchill. He'd never used it before. He didn't know what might happen. And he didn't want to go home and have to announce the Prime Minister's death. So he used the sulfonamides, M&B 693. They were familiar to him. So Lord Moran doesn't quite meet up to the image of the villain, though he was certainly capable of it. And another suspect who's fingered is actually Queen Elizabeth. He was president of St Mary's Hospital. So, a lot of controversy, a lot of similar suspicion, most of it unfounded. And Flory certainly disliked the way the media were putting forward a lot of sob stories, the sort of publicity of the sob stuff character, as he calls it. Well, In 1944, ICI commissioned a film about penicillin. Florey objected to the fact that Fleming was shown treating patients with it. And uh, pointed out, well, when when it was pointed out to him that, yes, Fleming was actually doing that, that that particular sequence was out of, out of the chronology of what happened. He was quite happy to have other views of the work at Oxford out of chronology, but he refused to have Fleming shown doing anything. It had got down to that level, and yet in public there had to be signs of amity between the two men. Fleming had probably just rode over he was undemonstrative and just took things as they came. There was actually even an attempt by one of F- Flory's American colleagues, John Fulton, who had taken Flory's children in when they were evacuated in 1940, to try and stop Fleming from being nominated for the Nobel Prize. John Fulton wrote to Chester Kiefer, who was uh, one of the leading figures in getting penicillin production underway in the United States. He wrote to him and said that Fleming had just uh, mentioned penicillin as a weed killer, nothing else. And Kiefer wrote back and said, well, I think you should read the original paper you'll see he actually points out to the clinical potential. Fulton also claimed that the entire medical profession in the United States would not support Fleming getting a Nobel Prize. Well, actually, quite a lot of nominations and letters of support came from American doctors. But this just shows the way in which Flory and his friends were trying to orchestrate a campaign against Fleming. Well, Fleming was... uh, It was announced in 1944 that Fleming had won the Nobel Prize for Medicine. 1944. The announcement came via Switzerland and was totally untrue. People uh, wrote to Fleming congratulating him, and he was forced to say, thank you. It would have been nice to have got the prize, but I haven't. However, he was nominated for the 1945 prize. Together with Flory and Chain... Fleming received the bulk of the nominations, 20 in total. Florey received 13 nominations. But, except for one of these, they were all jointly with Fleming. Chain was nominated by only one person. Now you might think, well... Flory, Fleming and Chain all shared the nineteen forty five Nobel Prize. How could Chain get it with just one nomination? Well that actually came from Professor Lilienstadt of the Karolinska Institute. He was an influential figure in determining who got the Nobel Prize for medicine. So politics comes into that. Result in December 1945, Fleming, Florian, and Chain go along to Stockholm and share between them the 1945 Nobel Prize for Medicine. A fair enough result. I do wonder, though, just uh, what the relationship between the men was at the ceremony and afterwards. Now, it's interesting that by this time, Florey and Chain were not on speaking terms. At the end of the war, Florey told Chain there was no place for him in the labs of the William Dunn School of Pathology. And Chain then went off to work in Rome. Flory then promptly, despite having said that he intended to rest and do nothing very important or interesting in scientific terms in the next few years, then becomes involved in in the search for new antibiotics and the development of the Keflosporins. So you can see that that is a relationship It is uh, very difficult. Now surprisingly, Chain, volatile, as temperamental as an opera singer, a man who, if he hadn't become a scientist, could have become a concert pianist of world standard, he then becomes very friendly in his attitude towards Fleming. He saw both of them as outsiders. Now, Fleming actually wasn't. Fleming was linked in with the scientific establishment, just as Flory was. It was Chain, who was a German-Jewish refugee, who stood outside that. But perhaps because of some of the controversy and Fleming's failure to be elected to the FRS for 20 years, that helped to make... Him more sympathetic to chain. Meanwhile, Fleming went on for the last ten years of his life to a new career. He was sixty-four when he got the Nobel Prize for Medicine. His best days as a scientist were over. But he very much became an ambassador for Britain. Also an ambassador for British science and medicine. By this time, in the aftermath of the Second World War, science was seen as something scary, something threatening. And what humanised it was a modest man... He was seen to have done great things, but could have been anyone. When he visited Spain in 1948, matadors and toreadors knelt in front of him. He was so overwhelmed by it all that he uh, commented, They seem to think I'm Winston or Princess Elizabeth the celebrities of the time. In his way, he was the Diana of his day in terms of the adulation he got. And he just took it all in its stride. And it was said that he was perhaps the best ambassador Britain had. And when you think of it, he fitted into that post-war mood. The modest, unassuming man Someone who was the complete antithesis of the larger-than-life figures that had certainly dominated the political and military arena of the war years and before. A bit like Attlee succeeding Churchill as Prime Minister. People responded perhaps at this stage to someone who was perhaps less extrovert. And Fleming received honours all over the world and still retained that essential modesty. But even after his death, the controversy didn't end. Fleming died suddenly in March 1955 of a heart attack. Flags in the Dominican Republic were lowered in his honour. And it was decided to launch a Fleming Memorial Appeal. And there were offers of support from all over. Queen Elizabeth, the Queen Mother, gave her blessing to the appeal. Prince Philip, then putting himself forward as a new Prince Consort, for the new Elizabethan age, but one active in science and industry rather than the arts, he became its patron. However, Howard Florey objected. He objected to the inclusion of the name Fleming in this appeal. And... There was a lot of discussion. He mobilised support within the Royal Society and within the Royal College of Surgeons, the Royal College of Physicians. And eventually, Prince Philip resigned as President of the Appeal. He didn't want to be involved in something where people were tearing themselves apart. All because of the use of Fleming's name. Flory just couldn't forgive any slight to himself. Well, the appeal was eventually launched in 1958, two years after the first one collapsed. And by this time, they'd realised that if there was to be any hope of success, they would have to use the Fleming name. It stood for something. And I think, simply to conclude, that uh, Fleming was certainly someone who deserved to be an FRS. And perhaps, perhaps in the popular understanding of science, his name will be one of those fellows that will be remembered... Perhaps more than any of the others, apart from perhaps the founders. So, thank you for your patience this afternoon, and I'll happily take any questions. Yes. Has anyone got any questions? I promise I won't uh, assume, like Fleming, that I've said it all marvellously. No? <laughs> Um, also just to remind everyone if you have signed up for one of the three tours of the Fleming Laboratory, just to point out again, they're not here, they're over at St Mary's, the Prade Street entrance to the um, St Mary's Hospital campus there's one on the 13th, one on the 18th and one on the 19th and they all start at 2pm if anyone is here who might have turned up on spec today and therefore hasn't signed up for one of these tours, there is still space on the 13th and 18th um, so do come and speak to me afterwards I'd be happy to sign you up Um, for one of those tours and um, do have a look at some of the leaflets we put out about the the other museums of health and medicine in London and also the Royal Society's continuing events celebrating their 350 years of science thank you all for coming here today